Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, college students, are you looking for a way to get ahead this summer? Northwestern University is offering hundreds of undergrad courses online this summer. Choose an intensive sequence in learning. Registration is open now. Visit northwestern.edu slash summer for details. All right, everybody, before our interview with Tom talking all things The Last Dance, and trust me, it's a long one, and boy, they love talking all things <laughs> The Last Dance. I had to sit here during the whole thing. Good Lord. All right. So before we uh, get to that interview, we actually have a follow up, an update on the story that we've been talking about today here on the Ben Jarofsky show. Uh, For those who may not know, lawmakers in Springfield returned to the state capitol for the first time in more than 10 weeks, all keeping a six foot distance and all supposed to be wearing masks. We say supposed to be because, well, there's one feller who said he was not going to wear a mask. Yes, it's Darren Bailey, the subject of many Ben Jarofsky shows as of late. The downstate Republican uh, went and met with his colleagues in Springfield and, yeah, the damn dude didn't wear a mask. And the following comes from the Chicago Sun-Times, Tinas Fondellas and Neil Early. Downstate, uh, downstate lawmaker Representative Darren Bailey was booted from the Illinois House on Wednesday with the help of some of his fellow Republicans after refusing to wear a face covering during the first of three House sessions. We were wondering it all throughout the show. Are they going to give Bailey the boot? Well, they, in fact, gave Bailey the boot. I am surprised. Remember, we t- I talked about this. I was like, which way will Madigan go? I have not seen the details, D. This is breaking news that you're giving to me, so I don't know uh, if he was ushered out by security, if uh, fellow Republicans asked him to leave. Uh, but I talked about this, the showdown. Darren, uh, what they call him downstate, D. You don't know this, Darren, big boy Bailey. Oh, how many uh, times you been downstate? <laughs> You're My always whole, down there, right? Wait, uh, you, you know about the, the lingo downstate. They call him, uh, what do they call him? Darren Big Boy Bailey. Oh, yeah. Uh, I believe I was last downstate. Mm, I can't remember when I was last. Down, but everybody knows that. You didn't know that? Oh, shout out to our uh, former Bendrovsky show guest, one uh, Emmanuel Chris Welch. Uh, it says here, Democratic Rep. Emmanuel Welch made a motion to remove Bailey from the House proceedings after Bailey responded, I will not, <laughs> when he asked to come TV. into compliance uh. with the face covering requirement. Wait, wait, do it as Alex Jones. Oh, do it as Alex Jones. All right. So Democratic Representative Emmanuel Chris Welsh made a mention to remove Bailey from the House proceedings after after Bailey responded, Damn you, China! (laughs) DB! Big boy! Come on, D. (laughs) When he asked to uh, come into compliance with the face covering requirement in the newly adopted rules, the House voted 81 to 27 in favor of Bailey's removal. Get lost, Bailey. They said, put a mask on, you creep. 81 to 27. (laughs) The Republicans stood their ground. Bailey told reporters after his ouster, now look. (laughs) 
Never seen it. I think I have seen one interview with Darren, but I can't remember. What DB! Like, now look here, all right? It's time to put an end to this stuff and say enough is enough. Oh, he's a rapper. <laughs> Asked about uh, Bailey's removal during his COVID-19 uh, briefing. Pritzker called Bailey's decision uh, to, oh, he called it, quote, a callous disregard for life. Callous disregard for people's health. Uh, he moved on to say here, uh, face coverings, Pritzker said of face coverings, quote, uh, it's to protect others. So clearly the representative has no interest in protecting others. And uh, you missed this part of the story, D. Oh. Uh, after Bailey uh, was uh, let out of the uh, arena or wherever they were, the hotel, wherever they were, it was in the uh, parking lot that he was joined by about 20 uh, men in uh, MAGA hats, and they all... Uh, saying, come on, enjoy our combo. Hey, ain't it a beautiful set? Oh, the resistance of the Republicans. So wait, none of that actually happened? <laughs> which which part? All of the story you told. Uh, with the Republicans. In, in the, the parking lot and uh, all that? I don't think so. Oh, okay. So none of that happened, guys. <laughs> uh, come on, enjoy my combo. Hey. Ah, uh, the Republicans and the resistance. I hope everybody listens uh, to Bob Diver, uh, a sane voice in the wilderness and we hope everyone listens to the following interview brought to you by the ben jarofsky show enjoy and we'll see you tomorrow this has quickly become my favorite part of the week every wednesday i do a bulls talk well actually i'm going to broaden this this is the last last dance talk and i got a perfect guest to have the last last dance talk but i decided that every wednesday at this time, I'm going to have basketball talk. There's no sports out there in the world, ladies and gentlemen. I'm losing my mind. I need my sports fix. My first love, as everybody knows, is basketball. It's my utter obsession. There's no basketball. So every week, I'm going to have a basketball discussion. Probably do a lot of Bulls talk because I'm a passionate Bulls fan, as everybody knows. So I thought it would be a great idea to close out the last dance portion of this discussion by bringing on the great Tom Scher, who for years was a uh, TV anchorman, sports anchorman. He had his own radio show uh, 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 talking sports. The man knows Bulls basketball inside and out. Young Tom Scher, welcome to the show. Ben, always good to be with you. I just, I, I want for you to know that I have one of those collector's item hats, which says Ben, B-E-N, from your <laughs> Your radio career, man. It's just great to be with you. All right. Now, just let's get a couple things out of the way first. Uh, number one, uh, Tom Scher was the, the press spokesperson for Joe Barrios. And as such, when he was the county assessor, I would call him from time to time to talk assessor's news. And usually about, I would say, 90% of the conversation was about sports. Uh, that's number one. Number two, Tom Scher is going to be on the show today talking about his expertise covering the Bulls, but this is a secret that he, he's, a, he's kind of ashamed to reveal. He's actually a Boston fan. So don't hold that against him, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's that, a, is not, <laughs> that is not true. I, as I'll tell you right now. I'm telling you straight out. For years, I, was, I grew up a Boston fan, but I was a Boston fan and a Chicago fan once I came here. I've been here 37 years. Okay. So... All right, but hang on. I will admit that it was difficult, uh, but I never had any conflicts because neither city was good at the same time. All right, how even when when uh, Jordan beat Boston with the sixty three point game, I didn't care about the Celtics. They'd won plenty of titles yeah. by that point. Who cares? But uh, in '04, when the Red Sox won the World Series, that monkey was off my back. And the next year, my White Sox played 
the Red Sox in the first round, and I went to all three games, including game three at Fenway Park, which I covered, and I was insanely rooting in my heart for the White Sox. So I'm Chicago all the way, baby. All right. And when the Cubs won it in 16, I was balling like a baby. All right. Now, wait, hold on. But just uh, a quick correction. And, and Jordan did drop 63 on the Celtics in 1986, but unfortunately the Celtics won that game at double overtime. So the Bulls did not win that game. Jordan did not beat the Bulls in 86 in that one game. He did drop uh uh, 86. Now, I got to ask you, I got to ask you, Tommy. You, all right. So I know you grew up a sports fan in Boston. Uh, you're a diehard uh, follower of sports. But for years, uh, you were a, a sports journalist. And the, the rule of the convention, I always thought, is no cheering in the press box. So is Correct. that is that true? The, the writers and the, the the reporters just keep their mouth shut and don't cheer when they're watching a game? That is absolutely true. I have to tell you, it's it's very impressive because it's hard not to sometimes. Um, but yes, that is correct. I've never been in a press box where I've heard here, maybe some Mickey Mouse guys and small towns and stuff, but never the Chicago guys. Um, never, never seen it. That is, un- I mean, you guys are watching some incredible, see, this is why I could never have been a sports reporter. I'm a fan. I'm a diehard fan. Right. I love, I love, well, I love both baseball teams. Uh, I'm really down on the Bears right now. The Mitch Trubisky drafting, I just I can't deal with them right now. I just cannot deal with the Chicago Bears. I know we're here to talk about the Bulls. I cannot deal with the Chicago Bears passing up Patrick Mahomes to take Mitch, trade up for Mitch Trubisky. I can't deal with them right now. But I am a diehard sports fan, so I don't know how I could go to a game. I would be so uncomfortable and irritated. Not sure. That's a good point. I will tell you this. When I go to games as a fan, and during my sportscasting career, it was 30 years when I was either at Channel 5 or The Score or WBBM, wherever I was, um, I did not cheer in the press box. I wanted the teams I was covering to win because that, how, do you, how do you not, unless they're bad guys? I never, don't remember a lot of bad guys. There are, but it's good for us and the city and the region and the fans when they win. And what's good for the region is good for everybody. So I wanted them to win, but I didn't cheer. But I'll tell you this. When I go to a game, you, you sit near me. I'm an insane fan. <laughs> no, no profanity. No, nothing inappropriate. But I am all over the place to the extent where some of my family members get a little embarrassed and uh i'm very vocal when i'm joe fan i love it i always have been all right now there's a lot to cover uh with the bulls and the documentary and the time period uh and eventually we'll get to the split up really want to pick your brains i read a essay you wrote in 1998 that's very prophetic on this issue but let's start at the beginning that'll be a tease to the end of the split up of the bulls 1984 michael jeffrey jordan is drafted by the bulls did you have any inkling that he'd be as great as he is no and no one did. Even Rod Thorne, the general manager who drafted him. I mean, they wanted Hakeem Olajuwon. Everybody did, but he went first to Houston. You know, they, as, as Red Auerbach always said, you can't teach height. Yeah. If you can draft height, you got it. Otherwise, forget it. So we all thought, you know, dominant center, but Bulls didn't have the number one pick. Nobody, uh, people thought Jordan would be a very good player. Not a problem. But nobody, including the Bulls, thought that. In fact, ironically, right now, you know what I'm looking at? Right. My press credential from the 1984 NBA draft. <laughs> I got it right here on my desk. Where, where did they, you, you were actually in, what was it, New York? You were in New York? No, no, I was here. I came to Chicago in 1983. No, but I mean, there was a, a draft 
Oh, well, pardon me. I'd say covering it. That's a little bit of a misnomer. The Bulls, and they still do this, they set up a draft central for the media at their headquarters. And back in 1984, they didn't have a headquarters. They were still practicing at Angel Guardian. They weren't even at the multiplex in Deerfield where they went after Reinsdorf bought the team. Um, and then years later, he built the Berto Center. But uh, And the Bulls were one of the first to have their own dedicated training facility. No, in 84, uh, the Bulls would set you up at uh, – we were at Spiaggia, that restaurant, at uh, 980 North Mish. And um, that was the same building the Bulls' offices were in, as I recall. I see. So we, that's where the Bulls had their draft night uh, media headquarters. I think even right into the – I think the 1991 draft – was the last one when they drafted Mark Randall. So the, we were all there, and no, we were not in New York. They, we, we covered the Bulls. We did it at the Bulls headquarters, right. all the Chicago media. Mark Randall. <laughs> I'm sorry, you just dropped that name out of nowhere, Mark Randall. I know. Uh, all right, wait, uh, I just have another quick correction. In 1986, this is total Bulls geekdom, the Bulls had a party at the Conrad Hilton for their draft. I, I remember this because I was there. And everybody at that party wanted the Bulls to take Johnny Dawkins. And I just remember the buildup, Johnny Dawkins, the guard played for Duke. Uh, and they thought, oh, Dawkins and Jordan in the backcourt. It's going to be unbelievable. The Bulls need a point guard, blah, 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 blah. And when it came to the draft, they the uh, Red Kerr got up and announced, I think it was Red Kerr, that the Bulls were drafting Brad Sellers. It was boom. <laughs> Hello? Yeah, I'm here. Can you hear me okay? Oh, I, I couldn't hear you there yeah. for a second. Anyway, so uh, I just had a different uh, draft night uh, memory. They were, where was that? Yeah, the they used to have a fans thing they did for years, then they stopped doing those. But uh, they had the media thing at their headquarters, I recall that. Got it. All right, the lowly fans. All right, so we, we uh, you were talking about uh, nobody uh, knew Jordan was going to be great. When did you first realize that he was going to great. What, what did it take? Was it preseason, the regular season? When did it first dawn on you that this was the real deal? It was at a gym for a preseason game, I think in Beloit, Wisconsin. They used to play some preseason games in Beloit. And I, I just can't remember the exact venue, but it was during the preseason watching this, these exhibition games. I'm thinking, wait a minute, this is only the exhibition season. What? So pretty much as soon as he got on the floor, I thought he would be, honestly, I really thought he'd be a future Hall of Famer. Greatest player ever, which he is. No, but I thought he'd be uh, definitely a Hall of Famer. Because, you know, I was raised on the Celtics of everybody from Bill Russell, who's the greatest uh, of all time at that type of position, uh, down to Sam Jones and KC Jones, uh, who were role players, really, for those teams. Uh, not Sam, obviously, you know what I mean. So I knew you could be, and those guys are all in the Hall of Fame, every one of them. So I knew you could be a Hall of Famer and not necessarily be the greatest player ever. So I thought he'd be a Hall of Famer if you put together a good 12 to 15-year career. But uh, you didn't think greatest player ever. Now, you mentioned Bill Russell, so quickly I want to uh, ask you this question. When Craig Hodgers was on the show last week, he started talking about contrasting Jordan and Bill Russell. And he's, he was noting that Jordan was uh, talking in the documentary about his need to chide teammates, sort of bully, be the bully, in order to get teammates to play better. And Craig Hodges opined that Bill Russell never did that, that Bill Russell was always a gentleman to his teammates, even though Bill Russell was a superstar, one of the great players. Uh, what's your thoughts? Craig, Craig Hodges is 100% correct. Mm. 
So did you? He's absolutely correct. Um, I used to know Bill Russell pretty well. I won't lie and say I know him now. I haven't seen Russ in probably 25 years, but I talked to him a lot. And he wasn't around Boston that much. He had he kind of reconciled with the city in, after I left and after I came to Chicago. But I, I did see Russ often enough, and he had a he had a, a member of the clergy who was a friend of his, and I knew this clergyman, and we talked enough times for me to know. And also, I talked to Red Arback a million times, and John Havlicek was still playing when I was covering the Celtics. I was a college freshman, my, and I got my first media job, and that was Havlicek's last year. And I talked to all these guys. And Bill Russell was an outstanding teammate. He did not bully the street guys. He didn't do it. The only controversy with Bill Russell is he would sign autographs, and that included for his teammates. And Tommy Heinsohn brought some roses in the locker room once or outside the locker room and asked Russ to sign some autographs, and he wouldn't do it. And that was an issue for Heinsohn for a while, but then he just realized that's the way Bill is. He'll shake hands, he'll have a conversation, but he thought autographs were ridiculous. So you, Until he got paid to do him as a senior citizen. <laughs> yeah, that's something else. So you don't buy the notion that uh, to be a leader, you have to be a bullier, a bully. Um, I do buy it. It depends on who the leader is. Um, I don't know of too many leaders who are bullies. Uh, Jordan, honestly, is the only one who comes to mind. Um, but I, I'm, I'm going to apologize for Michael. I felt badly at the end of one of the part. I think it was part eight. I can't remember what part it was where he broke down trying to explain why he was so tough. Um, if that's what works for you, that's what you have to do. So I don't, I can't re- recall any other guys who the teammates told me were bullies, but um, Ted Williams could be difficult. Jimmy Pearsall was one of my dear friends, God rest Jimmy's soul. And he said, Ted could be difficult, not on the teammates, but he might, he might gripe about teammates talking to the press because Ted didn't talk to the press back when he was a player. He might criticize other teammates doing it. So he could be a pain in the neck. But if if it's whatever works for you, see, Ben, here's the problem. And this is what nobody has ever really, I don't remember any sports reporter ever saying this. And it took me years to figure it out. I'm not some genius. But here's the thing. What is one of the strongest human emotions? It's fear. It's fear. Now, if an insurance guy does a lousy job, who knows he screwed up? And I've had some insurance men screw up on me, okay? Who knows that? Yeah. They know it. The policyholder knows it, you know, the customer. One customer knows it. And maybe the home office, when you call to complain, okay, the regional director knows that he wrote your policy wrong. Okay. Um, if a basketball player screws up, who knows? millions and millions of people. So how do you overcome that fear of failure? You have to have supreme confidence, the highest confidence. Well, it's not much of a thick thick line. It's a very fine line between confidence and arrogance, confidence and ego. I've known a lot of good broadcasters. They were egomaniacs. Well, what kind of person goes on the air and doesn't mind putting himself out there. If you have bad broadcast, you look like an idiot in front of all those people. It brings out the ego in you because you have to have ego and confidence to overcome the fear. And that's what makes the great ones successful. And there's not a single broadcaster out there, including myself, who, when they were on the air, didn't have a substantial ego. You have to have it. It's just a matter of what degree. There's not a great athlete out there who doesn't have a substantial ego. It could be a quiet ego like Anthony Rizzo of the Cubs or Tim Anderson of the White Sox, even though he flips his bat. He's not an egomaniac, not at all. Or it could be a raging ego like Michael Jordan. It's whatever makes you great. 
And I don't think people understand greatness. George Gershwin was an egomaniac, a colossal egomaniac. But these were great men and women at what they do. And I, I have no problem if that's what Jordan thought he had to do. It's unfortunate. I would like to have seen if it would have worked the other way. We'll never know if Jordan could have been a great leader and not be the type of tough guy he was. We'll never know. Well, here's but what the, we do know yeah. for sure mm-hmm. is that what he did worked. All right. And it worked brilliantly. Now, let's put it. I'll, uh, here's a criticism of Jordan. and get your response. I would buy totally 100% what you said if Jordan was consistent. But from what I'm reading in the post, uh, the articles and reaction to the last dance, he picked and chose who he bullied. So he bullied Scott Burrell. We know that. Uh, but I don't believe he bullied Dennis Rodman. I, I know he was uh, upset when Bill Cartwright, uh, when Charles Oakley was traded and Bill Cartwright came on. And there's a story early on where he was given Cartwright uh, words and Cartwright threw an elbow at him, never bullied Bill Cartwright. In other words, I could buy it if he bullied everyone, but it seemed like he picked He bullied Will Perdue. He bullied Scott Burrell. Uh, I don't think he bullied Craig Hodges, for instance. So do you follow what I'm saying? I'm looking for a consistency. Well, Go ahead. I, I do, but then, you know, it, it, it's, 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 it's a criticism. Okay, fine. But it's only recognize who you can and cannot get away with it on. Um, I don't know. Jordan's argument is he was trying to make these guys better. Okay, fine. Um, he didn't bully Scott Williams. He was like a big brother to Scott Williams, whose parents died tragically. Um, and he took Scott Williams under his wing. Uh, he was, you know, not always this bad guy. And I'm, Jordan is not the saint he was made out to be. He never was. But I don't think he's, you know, the, the bad guy that some people might, you know, think he was. I didn't like his Hall of Fame speech. I thought it was raging egomania. I thought it was inappropriate. Other people say, no, that's who Michael is. He's got to have, he's got to have, you know, something to motivate him, some negativity to fight against. I thought I thought it was over. He, Michael overdid it, but I don't think that you know he's as bad a guy as people might make him out to be. It's complicated, man. Scott it's complicated. I don't see anybody giving back the rings. Yeah. I, don't see any, I don't see Scott <laughs> giving back his championship rings. That's a good point. You know. By, by the way, I just have to take issue with you. I love the the speech. I just thought it was Jordan, and I love the part where he started complaining how he bought pay for the tickets. <laughs> he, I don't know if you've ever seen this. He was complaining. I better pay. You charged me for. I all these family here. You charged me for the tickets. Go, go ahead, complain about. Uh, so I actually kind of like the speech. All right, now this is something I've always wondered, and uh, I'll ask you this now: the public, yep. we learned about this behind-the-scenes stuff with Michael Jordan and the teammates by watching this movie, this series. Did you, the press corps, did the press corps know about this in real time while it was happening? We knew some of it, uh, especially after Sam Smith's book came out, uh, The Jordan Rules. We knew some of it. Um, but you have to understand, like, I remember the Boston press coming through here. A lot of them were friends of mine, and they were at some post-game thing where Michael Jordan was in, being interviewed, and he kept referring to the Bulls as the other players as my supporting cast. Mm-hmm. And a couple of these guys, Dan Shaughnessy, pretty famous columnist said, does he do this all the time? Is he that much of an egomaniac all the time? And I said, yeah, but you got to understand them. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he's patient. He's available with the press. This was during the first repeat. He scaled back his media availability tremendously after he came back from his first retirement. But I said, you have to under, we understand the guy. 
you know, we're around brilliance every day. If you hear that, you know, he's a jerk to this guy or a jerk to that guy, I can tell you 20,000 stories where he was wonderful to people, wonderful to people. And, uh, you just, you got to put it all in perspective, I guess. So yeah, we knew, so we knew some of it. Um, uh, but I also knew, as I say, stories that showed his tremendous humanity and, you know, there's uh, I'm surprised they didn't show Carmen. They only showed her once. There's a woman named Carmen Villafane who was confined to a wheelchair and the bulls, Jordan basically adopted her in a, in a, not in a literal sense. And she became almost like the team mascot. And long after he left, he even gave her a job at the Jordan foundation. And long after he left the bulls, she remained uh, on the inner circle with the bulls with special access and everything else. And John Pacton, when he took over the bulls said, Hey, Carmen's family, she's not going anywhere. So that was all due to Michael Jordan. I mean, he, I don't know, man. I, I don't have a lot of, I recognize that he does have feet of clay. Don't we all? Yeah. All right. Let's break down some of the characters that uh, were introduced uh, in this uh, series and get your thoughts on them and, and their legacy. And we'll start with the person who was more or less uh, set up as the villain of the story. And that would be uh, former general manager, Jerry Krause. And I'll just point out he was not around to defend himself because Jerry died in 2017. So what's your thoughts right. about Jerry Krause? Well, um, as I wrote in the, that, that you mentioned that essay I wrote, it was, a, it was a guest column in the Chicago Tribune in 1998. I started beating the drum on this uh, when I had my talk show uh, right around a few years before. Um, my opinion is that it's a shame Krauss isn't around to defend himself. I think that the documentary was very unfair to Krauss. Uh, I think it's great that Scottie Pippen said Krauss was the greatest general manager ever. Uh, Phil Jackson said that when Jackson got the Knicks job, he said, I'm going to pattern myself after Jerry Krause, you know, who I think was what an NBA executive should be. Well, that's all great, fellas. You say it after the guy's dead. That's wonderful. Yeah. You know, where were you when you were with the Bulls and you treated him like garbage? Uh, I think it's, I think uh, Jerry Krause was treated unfairly. I don't believe he's ever received. Well, as I say, he's never received the credit he deserves, but he was voted NBA executive of the year. I think twice by his, uh, peers. So that's a lot of respect right there. But I don't think from the fans or the players or Phil Jackson, I don't believe that Krauss ever got the credit he deserved. And I think the documentary was very unfair to him. Now, he brought on some of it himself. He said and did stupid things. Reinsdorf was very clear in some of his print inter interviews of the last week or so that there was no need for Jerry Krause to say, even if Phil Jackson goes 82-0, and he's not coming back as coach. There's no need for that, none. But the relationship with Jackson had long since been fractured because of Jackson's behavior, not Krauss. Well, let me say this. Uh, that's nice that Jerry Reinsdorf said that, but if he really felt it in, at the moment, he would have immediately forced Krauss to back away from it. I always thought that Krauss was the front man for the Bulls organization uh, and that the Bulls organization had made uh, a fiduciary decision, if you will, that it wasn't in their best interest to keep this team together because all of the contracts, it was a money decision. And, and I just want Absolutely not. That's completely ridiculous. All right, we'll go, we'll, we'll, we'll debate that up. Let me just finish my thought uh, Sorry. on this point. Listen, I, I welcome the debate. I will say this. He's the greatest Jerry Krause 
the greatest general manager in the history of Chicago sports. You cannot name one general manager greater than Jerry Krause. And the level of torment that he took, the level of abuse from fans and, uh, and players was inexcusable, and the media as well. Greatest general yeah. manager. Name one even close. Name one yeah. even close. You can't. You can't. It's really sad. Now, you're not going to believe this, but this is how sick I am. I love this stuff so much. I, I didn't do it because I'm coming on your show. I just have been going through going through boxes of tapes and trying to clean up my closets and everything. And I pulled out a tape of the 1996 Bulls clinching game of uh, the fourth quarter and the post game celebration of the NBA ceremony trophy trophy presentation all that and Jerry Krause was not booed there were some boos but he got a lot of cheers and Channel 11 which I have to give a plug to the show Chicago tonight I think it's the greatest show in the history of local Chicago television and they do it five nights a week Channel 11 ran a clip this week of Reinsdorf and Krause on that show after the 96 title, and there was a reference made to Jerry Krause getting cheered. So he had been cheered that year. Uh, I think the real booze started after Phil started carping at him in the press and Jordan was chiming in and, and all that. It's very sad. I, I really used to hate it when they would have the ring ceremony and the banner raisings at the next November, and he'd get booed at those things. As of spring of 96, he was being cheered. I can't recall about the first repeat, but it, I think it all started uh, in the fall of 96 because Phil's contract had been an issue and then blah, blah, blah. And uh, it's very sad. Well, very sad. I, I, I agree can, with you. He is he's the greatest. You, I cut you off. You agree that he's the greatest general manager in the history of Chicago sports? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And you didn't cut me off. There's no long, no short answers with me. I need to tighten it up a little. Sorry. <laughs> uh, all right. Now uh, we'll get to the breakup. I don't want to jump ahead of ourselves. We'll get to the breakup. But I, by the way, I Kraus was he was booed in the early eight, uh, parts of it too. A large part because he got off to such a bad start with Jordan, and uh, yeah. and so Jordan let it be known that he he didn't like him. And by the way. I, by the way, it sounds like I'm bashing Jordan. I worship Jordan like the rest of Chicago did. But I'm glad that Krause didn't always listen to Jordan's advice because Jordan is not a great general manager. You know what I mean? And uh, he's a great, the greatest basketball player of time. But he, he would be giving it Krause. Like, he would recommend certain players. Remember, remember he wanted Walter Davis to be on the Bulls? And it was like, yeah, he wanted Walter Davis. If, if the Bulls had listened to Jordan, they would have drafted Buzz Peterson, <laughs> which would have been a disaster. Um, yeah. I don't know, North Carolina. No, there's no question about it. And, you know, again, I want to make very clear. We, I don't mean Ben Jarowski, but we in the sports media made a lot of money off of Michael Jordan. Yeah. He made a lot of money off of us. He sold a lot of sneakers and he sold a lot of Gatorade. And we were right there every step of the way helping him out. But it was a mutually beneficial relationship. So I want to thank Michael Jordan for the role he played in my career. I'm not even sure we start the score sports radio. You know, I was the first uh, voice on that station, part of the original team with uh, Jiggets and Mike North and Dan McNeil and, and Terry Bores and, and all those guys. But and uh, Brian Hanley, I. I, I wouldn't have, maybe we don't start that show if not for the tremendous, that station, if not for the great success of the Bulls. So I thank Michael, but I will say, I will say this. Um, and, and I think, I think this is, this is kind of important is Michael's ego sometimes got the better of his better judgment and his honesty. And when the, he did not want Charles Oakley traded, 
They traded Oak Krause, brilliant guy. Krause drafted Oakley and then traded him at the right time for the player they needed, Bill Cartwright. Jordan did not like that trade. That's been well documented. He was very critical of it. He was critical of Cartwright early. And then, oh, gee whiz, the Bulls won three titles with Bill Cartwright at center. By that time, Jordan was saying great things about Cartwright. Well, when he didn't like the trade, he criticized Jerry Krause. There is a Chicago Tribune article that I still have the paper flipping of in which Sam Smith or somebody, maybe Terry Armour, God rest his soul, wrote an article about how great Bill Cartwright hasn't this worked out. This is great. And they quote Jordan as saying, oh, yeah, Bill's done a great job. You know, I, I was opposed to that trade, but I realize it was great now. And, you know, uh, but Jerry Krause doesn't deserve credit for that trade. Doug Collins made that trade. That was Doug Collins which is patently false. But because he just couldn't bring himself to give Krauss credit, even though years had passed with three titles that proved Krauss was right, he criticized Krauss when he didn't like the trade, and he gave the credit to Doug Collins when he did like the trade. So I love Michael. I thank him for what he did for me professionally. but uh, And personally, he was always very nice to me. But I don't like the hypocrisy. I don't like it. Uh, that's well put, and I agree with you on that one. All right, and it's, by the way, it's, that's not the only example, and it's not just Michael Jordan. A lot of cross-haters in this town, they'll pick and choose. They'll go, well, he, he didn't draft Jordan, so don't give him credit for that. He was lucky, and he didn't want to, they always go, he didn't want to draft Horace Grant. He wanted to draft Joe Wolf. Well, guys, I don't know what was said in the back room, but he drafted Horace Grant, okay? So, you know what I mean? When you want to hate the guy, you look for any excuse to hate the guy. All right, Tom, let's move on and talk about um, one of the the more controversial issues that was uh, the this I got to give the documentary credit they confronted it and that was the uh, the murder of James Jordan and all the uh, unfounded rumors that immediately emerged that somehow or other it was like a related to gambling problems of Michael Jordan and I, I uh, so many people Tom would tell me at the time you don't really know that I'm so used to this, by the way, because in politics, it's the same thing. In politics, people always whisper, but you know, here's the real story off the record. Don't tell anybody who told you this. And then they tell you something that's outrageous and they hide behind the off the record. Do you follow what I'm saying, Tom? They they hide behind being off the record. Uh, and yep. so it was the same thing with Jordan. People were always whispering, oh, Ben, come on. You didn't know this? Come on. Don't be naive. I never bought it that... Uh, Michael Jordan was punished by David Stern for his gambling issues, and that's why he left. I never bought that. Did you ever buy into that? No, absolutely not. It's nonsense. The only part is that uh, when Jordan retired in 93, the next day or the day after, David Stern quietly quietly announced that the, uh, that the um, uh, investigation was closed. So that's... You know, that was a little odd timing, but um, no, the, the, the two had nothing to do with the, the gambling investigation had nothing to do with his suspension and the death of his father. God rest his soul, Mr. J, who I really liked, um, had nothing to do with anything other than two bad guys, you know, trying to rob him. Apparently one tried to rob him and the other later helped hide the body, but they were both involved. And it's very sad. And what was the impact on Jordan? Do you think that's why Jordan took that first break? Do you think he would have taken the break if his dad uh, had not been killed? 
Um, I think he wanted to take a break and he intended to take a break. I think his dad might have talked him out of it and said, listen, you're at your peak. Go for four and then see what happens. I think I think James would not have wanted him to retire. But I think once James was murdered, Jordan's existing desire to quit became more acute. Mm-hmm. All right, let's. Uh... I think it was very, very sad that he had to deal with all that. People who know Jordan well, and I'm not saying that I was one of them, they were not surprised that he retired. Uh, I was. Uh completely caught off guard i gotta tell you that i I don't know jordan at all so i can't even say i know him well uh i was completely uh caught off guard by it i was at that white Sox game where the word i it was in the documentary they were playing the blue jays in game one of the playoffs and i just remember the rumor it just hit like a buzz totally distracted from the white Sox, by the way uh yeah that that's one of the uh great untold stories i was shocked that the documentary misrepresented it and then Terry, uh, Teddy Greenstein wrote a great story, great story in the uh, Tribune about the retirement and the press conference the next day. Uh, and he didn't know this. He just was unaware of it. Uh, other people knew it for the documentary, but they glossed over it. Do you know who broke the story of Jordan's retirement? The implication is that CBS and Jim Gray heard the rumors at the ballpark and Jim Gray confirmed it and CBS put it on the air. That's the implication, right? Mm-hmm. Who broke it? Jane Pauley, NBC News, broke that story. And when the documentary ran her clip, they just included it in a bunch of other video. No, she was the first one. What happened was Jordan was in the skybox. He had thrown out the first pitch. Everybody knows that. He was up in the skybox with Reinsdorf, Einhorn, and a bunch of guests. And Dick Ebersol of NBC, he was the president of NBC Sports, and maybe even the president of NBC News at the time. I can't recall. He was up in the box. and he was tight with Eddie Einhorn and the rumors are swirling around the skybox. And he asked Einhorn who said, yep, Jordan's quitting tomorrow. Ebersol went to a phone, called NBC in New York and said, you got to put this on the air. And that was a little bit before 10 PM. The ball game was, I don't know, only in the sixth or seventh inning and maybe even the fifth inning. And, um, Jane Pauley put it on the air. Mark Jean Greco was working at Channel 5. He and I were standing in the press box. He was about 20 feet away from me. And he came up to me and said, the office just called my cell. You're not going to believe this. Jordan's retiring. Jane Pauley just reported it. What? And then he and I started to work the story. Yeah. Um, so that, just an FYI, Jane Pauley broke that story because Dick Ebersol was in the box and he was smart enough to call. Pat O'Brien of CBS was in the box and he didn't do anything. So later Jim Gray confirmed it on his own and went on the air with it. And then they put Pat O'Brien on the air cause he was in the ballpark. But uh, Jane Pauley never got the credit. She did. It was, it was the Tribune or somebody, Jack Craig in the Boston Globe, somebody years later wrote a story about it. And Pat O'Brien admitted that he was in the box and did nothing. And Dick Ebersol confirmed that that's how he got the story. And that's how NBC broke it. I did not know that. That's uh, I. Uh, I just thought it was just like emerged from the atmosphere. You know what I mean? I uh, never thought of a single source. Happened. Uh, all right, uh, let's talk about the legacy of Scottie Pippen. And uh, reportedly, Scottie Pippen's upset with uh, the way he was portrayed uh, in the documentary. He doesn't think he got the credit he deserved, and too much attention pl- uh, placed on the uh, 1.8 seconds uh, in the uh, playoff game against the Knicks. What's your sense of Scotty's legacy as a Chicago Bull? 
Well, his legacy is great. Hall of Famer, one of the 50 best players ever. Um, I almost never side with players, uh, even though I'm a left-of-center Democrat. I almost never side with players because I just don't see them as much as being the proletariat as they see themselves. But I do, and I, I'm a pretty big fan of Jerry Reinsdorf and of the late Jerry Krause. But I do think that Pippen deserved to get his contract ripped up, at least for the last couple of years. I mean, come on. You know, they made makeup payments to, to Michael Jordan. He was underpaid, so they gave him $36 million a year for two years, and they paid him for two years to play baseball. You know, they paid him his basketball money. But Pippen never got the makeup call. And I, and, and, and I was not a huge Scottie Pippen fan off the court, but I do think he was wrong. That said, I think he's dead wrong for saying that he was misportrayed in the documentary. He looked great in that documentary. And and all the the key stuff he did and the the credit he got, the kudos he got, okay, so he can criticize for selfishly delaying his surgery intentionally and missing half the year of the last dance. He deserves that criticism. He got criticized for the 1.8 seconds. He deserves that criticism and more. He should have bought bought Tony Kukoc a brand new house because if Tony Kukoc doesn't hit that miracle shot against the Knicks, Pippen gets run out of town. I guarantee it. So, you know, Scottie Pippen is, um, he's his own worst enemy. And, you know, it's funny. I'm not kidding. This is the truth. Anybody who wants to come to my house, I'll play these tapes for him. I found another tape yesterday. Uh, I took something I totally forgot. I absolutely, I totally forgot about these two incidents during the 93-94 season. Do you remember Scottie Pippen got charged with illegal possession of an automatic weapon? I do remember the gun was found in his car, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I forgot about that. And he claimed that the traffic stop was caused by a woman who was behaving in a racist manner. It turns out Pippen took the gun and waved it at her. That's how she knew the gun was there. She got a cop and said, the guy in that car has a gun. And Pippen claimed that she had made some sort of a racial gesture against him, although he never defined what that gesture was because it never happened. The man was lying. The worst lie he ever told was um, the same year he said, and I have it on tape. If anybody wants to hear this tape, I'll it for him. Pippen said that, uh, he was getting booed for something. I don't remember what it was. And Pippen said, this might have been the fall of 94 after the 1.8 seconds. I can't recall because my tape only says 1994 on it. Pippen said that he was getting booed. He said, they only boo the white. He said, they only boo black guys here. The fans of Chicago Bulls don't boo white guys. And I also have on that tape Will Purdue saying, well, I guess he wasn't paying attention when I got booed. <laughs> and also on the tape is Michael Jordan saying, well, I guess Scott, it's not Scott's fault he wasn't around, but I was here when Dave Corzine got booed. Yeah. So, so Scotty made that ridiculously false charge of racism, and he's done enough to really piss people off. Yet he's a great player. He's a Hall of Famer, one of the 50 best when the league had that vote, which I can't believe has been about been about uh, 25 years ago. Um, so he deserves all the credit, and we're lucky to have him. And they don't win six titles without Scottie Pippen and his unselfish play. They don't. But that said, Scottie Pippen should thank his lucky stars that people here were so forgiving because right. he did a lot to really make people angry. All right, so that's a perfect setup for this question. I'm going to ask you, don't duck and dodge this question. Time All right. To share. Let's say, yet, brother. Let's say you're coach of the Chicago Bulls. Let's say it's game five at my beloved Chicago Stadium, 
and uh, it's tied, and there's 1.8 seconds to go. Do you call the final shot for Scottie Pippen, or do you call the final shot for Tony Kukoc? I call it for Tony Kukoc, and I'll tell you why. I never understood why. I didn't understand why at the time. But now the documentary did a nice job of showing it. I forgot. Kukoc hit three or four of those last-second game-winning clutch shots that year. I know that nobody on the floor, with Michael Jordan gone, he wasn't there, nobody on the floor would expect Kukoc to get the ball. They would think Pippen's going to get the ball and going to take the shot. So I think it represented the brilliance of Phil Jackson and the talent of Tony Kukoc. Unfortunately, it also showed us the stupidity and the ego and the insolence and the insubordination of Scottie Pippen. Well, I, I would have uh, given it to Kukoc, knowing what Phil Jackson knew. I didn't know it at the time. I thought, well, I don't blame Pippen for being ticked off. He still should have done what the coach told him. I didn't condone what Scottie did, but I understood why he was angry. I thought he was dead wrong. I was very critical of him, but I understood he would want to take that shot. Fine. But now, knowing what I know, if I'm Phil Jackson and I have that knowledge, and coaches get paid to know that stuff. See, that's what players don't realize. Coaches get paid to know that stuff. If I'm Phil Jackson, I give the ball to Kukoc for that final shot. I, I'm with you 100%. I got to tell you this. I followed Kukoc really closely that first series with the Bulls. And there was a game at the stadium against the Pacers where Reggie Miller hit what looked to be a buzzer beater. And he hit it, and there was still it was like a, a second left, and he did a bow. I love Reggie Miller. I, I just love him. He was he's you talk yeah. about the greatness of players who step up. So there he would he he bowed like he was <laughs> accepting accolades from fans who were booing him. Okay, you know, <sighs> and so the Bulls called timeout. They set up a play. Guess who hit the game? <laughs> he topped. Reggie Miller was Tony Kukoc. So I, that was in that same year. He hit that game winner. He undercut Reggie Miller. So I'm with you. I would have called it for him. That that said, I understand why Scottie Pippen was upset, and I want to give him a shout-out right now. Pete Myers. They call him off the bench cold, and you're inbounding the ball with all that pressure. You know what I'm saying? It's like Pippen said, Myers, you go in the game. I just always give Pete Myers a lot of credit, by the way. The guy is I always thought he had a lot of guts. You know, he stepped in for Jordan in the starting lineup. People forget that. Think about the pressure that was. I yeah, just... that's a very good point. By the way, after the uh, pre- after the game in the post game press conference, uh, uh, Jackson said he took Scotty out of the. He he decided not to put Scotty on the floor for the final one point eight. In fact, as you know, Scotty refused to go in. <laughs> he missed. Phil misspoke. They hadn't all come out yet because we hadn't all gone into the locker room and gotten uh, 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 Cartwright's side of it and everything else. And, you know, other players made clear what happened. So Phil said, you know, Scotty didn't like the play, so I told him not to go in or something like that. I've got the tape. It's pretty funny. All right. Now let's uh, – something developed uh, yesterday, I want to say. Horace Grant went uh, on a radio show. I can't remember which one, ESPN, and he uh, – he expressed his willingness to take it outside with Michael Jordan. I'm laughing because everybody's old now. Nobody takes anything outside when you're as old as uh, we are. Uh, and uh, so what about Horace Grant's legacy and all this? Um, he, there's so much of the attention was put on Dennis Rodman because he was, uh, you know, the power forward on the uh, second champion, uh, the, the, excuse me, the last dance team. But what do you think Horace Grant's legacy is in Chicago? Oh, I think it's, 
absolutely huge. I mean, they won three championships with him at power forward. Uh, they almost, they really should have gotten past the Knicks except for that stupid Hugh Hollins call in 94. They, they, they won 50-plus games and were playing very well in the playoffs without Michael Jordan. And obviously Pippen was tremendous. I think Horace Grant had a lot to do with that. When Horace left the next year, you know, they were barely above 500 when Michael came back and they couldn't get out of the, uh, out of the playoffs. They couldn't get to the conference finals without a good power forward. So, yeah, there's a lot of – you're right, Ben, you brought up a good point, that there's a lot of attention on Robin because he was central – not central, he was a huge part of the uh, second three-peat. But that first three-peat's all Horace. I think Horace's legacy should be terrific. Um, I guess he's, he's angry about being identified as one of the sources of inside stuff from Sam Smith's book, The Jordan Rules, right? Yeah, that's what he was upset about, yeah. Uh, well, there's nobody in Chicago likes Horace Grant more than I. In fact, my wife and I just ran into him at CVS uh, last year. We had a very nice conversation. But I'm an honest guy. If you read the book and if you read the afterword and the uh, acknowledgments and what Sam Smith wrote about Horace, you got to read the book, every page, with a reporter's eye. There's no question <laughs> that Horace Grant was one of the big sources for that, yeah. that book. No question. Uh, yeah. You know, as, as Will Purdue, uh, pardon me, I don't know if it was Will who said this. I can't recall who said it. There's been so much going on with this series over the last few weeks. It was basically Horace on Sam Smith's shoulder as he typed out the, the manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, but I also want, I wrote this down, Lily had been coming on the show, and I thought you'd ask, you'd make this up, you'd bring this up. I also want to say there were other sources of that book. Yeah. Okay. You know who the other sources were for that book? Who? Bill Cartwright, Craig Hodges, Phil Jackson, yeah. Jerry Reinsdorf. If you read the book carefully, there's a lot of inside stuff that came from those guys. And, you know, they it just, you know, people have to understand, it, it might not be, you know, something terribly controversial, but it's inside stuff. And if it's not attributed, you have to look at the logic of where did it probably come from. And a perfect example is um, in, in the book, The Jordan Rules, which I just reread about a month ago, getting ready for the series six weeks ago. Um, there's an anecdote in there about Jordan coming in to, to Reinsdorf and complaining about the coach. And I can't remember if it was Stan Albeck or Doug Collins. I think it was Doug. And I'm not saying that Jordan got Doug fired. I, 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 I'm not saying that. Mm -hmm. But it was because Jordan later hired Doug to coach the Wizards. Yes. They had an excellent relationship at the end. You know, don't forget, Michael Michael can be difficult on everybody. He's a brilliant guy. So there's not the coaches and players don't always agree. Christ, there was that, that uh, tape in the last dance of Phil laying out the play and Jordan saying, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. So anyway, there's a story in the book of Jordan having a one-on-one -on -one private meeting with Jerry Reinsdorf telling him X, Y, Z. And Reinsdorf said, you don't want us to do that because if it comes out that we did what you're asking for because you asked for it, you're going to look like a bad guy. So rethink what you're saying. Everybody take a deep breath and let's move forward. Now, that's a private one-on-one -on -one meeting between Jordan and Reinsdorf. So that means two people knew about it, Jordan and Reinsdorf. We can assume that, jo that Reinsdorf told Jerry Krause, so there's three people who know about it. And let's assume that Michael told his agent, David Falk, mm -hmm. okay? Or maybe he told his best friend, George Kohler. 
There's, there's one. So now we've got four people who know about it. Well, Jerry Krause wouldn't tell Sam Smith the time of day. Yeah. So we know, we know, we know Krause didn't tell <laughs> yeah. Sam Smith. I don't think George Kaler, I said Kohler, I think of the company, George Kaler or Juanita Jordan or Michael Jordan would have ever given Sam Smith a single shred of inside information. Yeah. In fact, Michael never talked to Sam for the book. Sam tried to do a sit down with Michael and he never did it. Okay. So there's, there's two, uh, two other people eliminated. Who's that leave? Jordan didn't tell Sam Smith about that meeting because it makes Jordan look bad, that meeting. So who's left? Reinsdorf. Reinsdorf. I've always felt, and I, I love Jerry, and I think he did a great job, and I think the criticism and his nonsense that he broke up the Bulls is idiotic, that Reinsdorf never did any such thing. But, this, but, but I do believe that that story came from Jerry Reinsdorf. And by the way, who did Sam Smith go to work for when he ended his newspaper career? The Bulls. Jerry Reinsdorf. Jerry Reinsdorf. Yeah. You think Sam Smith would have been hired by the Bulls if they had any problem with anything he ever wrote? Read all the stuff he wrote. He loved two people, Jerry Reinsdorf and Phil Jackson. He somehow managed to straddle that fence, God bless him. But he got a lot of inside stuff from those guys. Right. I don't know how much, I want to say a lot from Reinsdorf, but I, cause I, 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 was, I don't say that with a lot of confidence, but he got a lot of inside stuff from Phil. And if you read that book, I think a, a, the, the sources for that book were in the order I just gave. I think a prime source was Horace. I think a major source was Cartwright. I think a significant source was Hodges. I think a very big source was Phil Jackson. And I think a source was Reinsdorf. I, I would actually put Reinsdorf higher on that list, but I agree with your basic thrust. All right, let's close it down with the big debate, the breakup of the Chicago Bulls. I say it was a fiduciary decision, and uh, Jerry Krause was played, willingly played the patsy uh, and his reputation and legacy has suffered as a consequence. He willingly, almost happily, almost lustily played that role. Uh, you obviously disagree. What's your theory? Well, uh, let me ask you, if you don't mind, if I can ask you to break it down again. My theory regarding precisely what? Oh, the theory that, of that, the breakup of the Bulls. Broke up the Bulls? Yeah. With why they were okay. Jordan, the, the, the doc, just so everybody knows the documentary closes with Michael Jordan lamenting the fact that the Bulls did not get another chance, one more year to defend, which would have given them seven rings had they won. Uh, he goes, yeah. If we don't win, okay, break us up, but give us that other chance. And so, um, go ahead. Let's put it this way they would not have won it. There's no way they win again. No way. And if they didn't, I say, So what? Give them the chance. If they go to the conference finals, which they probably would have done, but don't forget, you know, it, it's hard sometimes to get past that second round. They barely got past the second round against the Knicks in 1992. People forget that. But if they lose in six or seven games in the conference finals, I think it would have been worth bringing them back. I have no problem with that. I don't think they had to win a title to prove that it, was, it would have been the right thing. So, but I still don't think they got broken up. I think that's been one of the great myths. It's completely false. Let's take a look at it. Number one. Does anybody think Dennis Rodman had any gas left in the tank? He played 35 games after that. Phil Jackson tried to bring him to the Lakers as a role player. Rodman couldn't even do that. They barely squeaked that third championship out of Rodman. So Rodman's got to be gone. Got to be gone. And Jordan knows it, by the way. Mm -hmm. So now you need a power forward. They're not that easy to come by. Look what happened in 95 when they didn't have Horace Grant. Michael was back and they still lost to Orlando. All right. So... Now you got no power forward. Okay. Scotty Pippen, and this is the big linchpin here. 
Jordan thinks Scottie Pippen would have come back on a one-year deal. Is he crazy? <laughs> Pippen had an offer from Houston for $50 million. He wanted $75 million. The Bulls did him a favor. They did a sign-and-trade to get him an extra $25 million because of the crazy, weird, weird rules with the NBA salary cap. Pippen got five years, $75 million. What did Pippen do after that? What did he do? Nothing. He had a mediocre year with Houston. He had a bad year the next year. And then the next three years, he was up and down. When the Bulls brought him back, they gave him $10 million over two years. That's pretty good walking around money. They, you know, they, they didn't renegotiate his contract when he played, but they gave him a $10 million gift when he came back. He played about 20 games and never played again. So Pippen, Pippen wanted a five-year, $75 million deal. I don't blame him. And he got it. God bless him. Yeah. But if the Bulls gave it to him, they would have become the Boston Celtics. Locked into long-term deals with high-priced guys who can't win a championship. Tom, you just, they made a, Tom you're making my my point you're making my point that's what i said it was a fiduciary decision everything you're saying is the supporting oh. evidence of my point my Not point is we, if, if you back oh, off no, wait a second you, wait. so you're saying that pippen wants five years the bulls didn't want to give it to him so that's the fiduciary decision oh, the it was a financial made. decision follow me it's his decision you're the owner of the bulls you're jerry reinsdorf and you have to decide whether you're willing to spend all this money as you're laying out, you're doing it, I think you're accurate, uh, on a team that's declining. The way it works in sports is generally it, the, uh, the player is losing money in the early parts of his career because he's underpaid for his value. The player yeah. picks up his value when he's sort of gets that last contract, which is really based on prior performance, and it's a risk. It's always a risk for the team that signs him because you know that his value as a player will decline as he gets older. So Jerry Reinsdorf had to make a decision. Do I spend all this money on Scottie Pippen knowing that he's declining? Do I spend all this money on Dennis Rodman knowing that there's no gas in the tank? Do I spend all this money on Steve Kerr? Go down the list. And they were all, the contracts were coming up. And But it's not just... It's not just a financial decision. It's a basketball decision because once you get locked into that money, that affects your salary cap. The, Bull, the Bulls, the, the Bulls had a, they, they had the highest uh, payroll in the league at about $63 million. At the time, the salary cap was only about $30 million. So once those guys leave, or as long as they stay, either way, you're locked in. So a financial decision is also a basketball decision. Fine. I mean, if, if, you know, you're, to, qu uh, to go to the Watergate, you're, we're quibbling over words. It's essentially the same okay. point I'm making. The point is... Okay, so let me let me bring this. So, so the, the, Rodman had no gas left in the tank. You're going to need a power forward. They made a decision not to keep Pippen on his terms five years. So now Jordan's not coming back without those guys. Phil, pardon me, forget Jordan. Phil Jackson's not coming back without those guys. Phil Jackson was already going to leave whether they brought those players back or not. Phil Jackson told the Bulls in 1995 he would not accept the five-year deal. Sam Smith, Jackson's pal, reported that in the Tribune. Why? Because Phil knew there were a limited number of years left, and he did not want to be part of a rebuilding. After Phil parted ways with the Bulls, the New Jersey Nets offered him a multi-year big money deal. He wouldn't take it because he didn't want to be part of a rebuilding. He wanted a championship-ready team. He eventually got it with the Lakers. He won five more rings. God bless him. But Phil Jackson did not want to stay after 1998. He told them that. And, in fact, there's further proof. He turned down the multi-year deal. Prior to 1996, 
he asked for a two-year deal, which would take him through 1998. If he wanted to stay past 98, why didn't he ask for more years? Because he didn't want it. And when the Bulls said, no, Phil, we're only going to give you a one-year deal for 96, 97, he came back and said, okay, you're bringing these players back. I'll take another one-year deal. And the Bulls said, okay, and they had to pay him a lot more. They, they could have gotten a bargain if they signed him to, to a two-year deal. So they paid him an extra three or four million, and he, and he got him six million for that final year. Why didn't he ask for more than one year? So Phil Jackson never planned on staying, never. By the way, and what a lot of people go ahead, finish. Yeah, your go thought. ahead. Go, no, finish your thought. What a lot of people don't know. Tex Winter confirmed this in an ESPN interview. Phil Jackson had a lot of issues going on in his personal life, and he decided he needed to leave Chicago. That was another factor. It wasn't the prime factor, but it made things more complicated. He and his wife were separated at the time, or they separated right around that time. It it wasn't publicly known, but it is true. And Tex Winter confirmed in an ESPN interview in 2000 or 2001, just a few years later, that for personal reasons, Phil, for family and personal reasons, Phil decided he was going to leave. Fair enough. He had already decided he was going to leave for coaching reasons. I, I, and by the way, one other thing. Yeah, one other thing. Yeah, okay, I, this is, a, this is a, something that has never been discussed publicly to my knowledge. You're the first person I've ever told it to. And I don't believe anybody else has ever told it to anybody. Prior to Phil's, the, the rupture with Jerry Krause was really bad. I'm going to blame Kraus for enough of that, but I'm going to blame Phil for more of that because I think Phil was ungrateful. He never, without Jerry Kraus, there is no Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson was planning on filing for unemployment and going to law school, quitting coaching. When he, when Jerry Kraus got him hired, he told Doug Collins, you got to take this guy as an assistant. I think Phil Jackson was ungrateful. I think he was a hypocrite. Prior to the last season, when Phil Jackson was not yet under contract for that last dance, the Bulls banned him from the Birdo Center. This was on the public record. It was publicly known. It was disclosed by Jackson's agent at the time, Todd Musburger. They banned him from the Birdo Center. Everybody thought, wow, they're being jerks or treating Phil like garbage. Well, and then they signed him, and he was once again admitted back on the premises. Why did they ban him from the Birdo Center? They knew other teams were interested in hiring him as a coach. They didn't know if he would take secrets with him. Still, you got to think Phil's an honorable guy, and it was unfair of the management of the Bulls to believe Phil would be dishonorable, right? You might say that. Mm-hmm. Not so fast. This has never been publicly disclosed before. Phil Jackson was caught rummaging through Jerry Krause's office and desk one night at the Birdo Center. Now, I don't know if it was shown by video, a camera, or if somebody caught him with their own eyes, but I know it occurred. And that was told to me by a member of the Bulls Board of Directors. I think we can logically conclude that only four people know that, three people, that only three people know that, well, now four because the Board of Directors guy. Three people knew that happened. Reinsdorf, Krauss, and Phil Jackson. Okay? The Board of Directors fellow told me, in the years since, one of the three people who did know that it happened who knew it did confirm to me that what my board of directors guy told me was true, that Phil had committed that dishonorable act. So that shows you how bad the rupture was. Yeah. Well, I did not know that. He got rummaging in his office. I mean, going through his desk, they were really worried about that. By the way, it was I, not. 
I not thought, his finest moment. I thought I knew everything about everything with the Bulls, but I did not know that. Uh, essentially, you and I had come to the same conclusion. Bottom line is this, that that really was the last dance. And there was yep. – you said there was no more tank in Robbins. I mean, there's no more yep. gas in Robbins' tank. There was no more gas in that team's tank. It was over. And uh, I, I think, think I think Michael Jeffrey Jordan for this documentary was, uh, you know, dreaming a, delu- a little delusional on that last comment. Uh, and well, Reinsdorf well, gave an interview to, uh, you know, I just cut you off, Ben. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Because I agree. He was delusional. He was disingenuous, really. Yeah. He, it, because Reinsdorf gave an interview with Casey Johnson of NBC Sports Chicago dot com and Reinsdorf said that he had meetings with Michael at the time and he's not going to disclose the specific things that were said but that Michael made it clear in those meetings that he Michael realized that the team would probably not be able to win another title yet here we are 22 years after those meetings there's Michael in the documentary that his company co-produced claiming they could have won or at least should have been able to try yeah, well, I wish they had tried, but uh, whatever. Six was, you know, at some point you could be selfish. Six is a lot, and six was nice. And it got me through the 90s, which wasn't the greatest of all decades in other, uh, in other ways. Tom Shear, we're out of time here. This has been a blast, and I think I'll bring you back for more basketball discussion. You're, I could see you passed the audition. You are a true <laughs> basketball fanatic slash geek. All right? So that's the highest honor I could give somebody when it comes to basketball. Thank you. Well, Ben, I really appreciate it. You're a big hoops guy, and our our late friend, the great Norm Van Leer, was a huge fan of yours, always touting your tremendous basketball knowledge. And I will tell you, I hope your listeners haven't had their patience tested by my long answers, but it's been my pleasure to be with you for sure. Oh man. That's uh, that's funny. You should mention Norm Van Leer. Maybe we should do a whole show on Norm Van Leer. It's my all time hero on the Chicago Bulls. Love Norm Van Leer. Take care, Tom. Good talking to you. All right, Ben. Be well. That's Tom Sheer. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.